I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. This is a Psalm of David who said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. About uh, in, in April, I think it was April, maybe the first of May, first part of May, but I think it was in April, uh, eight years ago, some symptoms started appearing in my body. And uh, they came out of the blue. There was no progression of anything. It just one moment there was, uh, uh, there was, there was nothing wrong. The next moment there were symptoms of what the doctor calls Parkinson's. And uh, within a couple of months, it was, uh, it was something that had, well, certainly you can well understand that it took me by surprise to take anybody by surprise as suddenly as it is. And, um, and I try, started trying to do some research, trying to figure out what it was. Didn't go to the doctor about it for about a year, maybe a little over a year. But within the first couple of months, within certainly within two months, maybe, maybe a month and a half, six weeks or so, I began to get into the scripture about healing, study what the Bible says about healing. One thing I started praying and asking the Lord for was that the Holy Ghost who guides us into all reality, all truth, according to what Jesus said, I began asking him to, to guide me into the reality of my healing. Now, I had no way to know there wasn't anything the Lord said or anything that, that I had a witness about, but I had no way to know that it was going to be as long a fight as it has been. But from that time, within six or eight weeks of the, of the first symptoms, the appearance of the first symptoms, I have for 17 or 18 hours a day, every day, just saturated myself with what, he, what the Bible says about healing for the physical body. There are no days between that point in time when it began and today that I was not reading scriptures that I've always known. Well, not always, but you know what I mean. What I've known since the time that I learned from Brother Hagin. I didn't find any new healing scriptures is what I'm trying to tell you. There wasn't anything that came to my attention that I had not heard before or read before or at least had been aware of. But it began a journey for me to pursue God in the area of healing, physical healing, like nothing I'd ever done before. I've never committed myself so completely to something as I did what the Bible says about healing. And as I said, I'm, I'm not a long sleeper. Uh, I sleep less now than I used to, I guess. But for 17 or 18 hours a day, every day, I've been meditating on healing scriptures. I've been quoting what the Word says. I've been acting on what the Word says. I've been standing in faith. And after this period of time has gone, since it's been about eight years ago since the time that I first started pursuing healing seriously and, and completely. For the last eight years, I can say that the person that I was in 2011 compared to the man that I am now in 2019, the difference is 
the degree to which I am persuaded, absolutely and fully persuaded, that God's word is true and that healing is a part of what Jesus paid the price for. I can't tell you how many times I've read these scriptures. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've even quoted these scriptures. But these simple scriptures, just like these in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Who forgiveth thy iniquities and who healeth thy diseases. That means more to me than it ever has. And it's not because there's, uh, of the things that have happened and the things that I can point to. The, uh, the different symptoms that I have experienced throughout the last eight years, some of them have been severe. Some of them have, uh, well, you've seen most of them. I say most of them. There's a lot of symptoms that aren't too, aren't too edifying to talk about. And, uh, and those things I've kept private. But there have been a lot of symptoms that if you've been watching, you've seen come and go. I'm certainly aware, at least, of the coming and the going of, of many different things in different parts of the attack that's come upon me or come against me. And I can't help at least once a day. Most times it's many more than that. But every day, and it's been this way for a long, long time, something will just come over me. An appreciation, a love for God's word, a thankful and a grateful heart for what the Bible says belongs to me. No matter what I see, and no matter what I feel. And folks, there is, in my opinion, no greater truth in all of the Scripture than the fact that Jesus paid the price for not only sins, but for sickness. Jesus paid the price for our spirits to be made new and for us to be made righteous. But I am just as convinced that he paid the price through the stripes that he took on his back in Pilate's court to provide healing for our bodies. And that has nothing to do with what I'll ever see or what I won't see or what I will have or what I won't have. It has nothing to do with the circumstances. Don't get me wrong. I believe everything that the word says is true for me. I believe God's word is true and I believe my words are coming to pass. And that being the case, I can say with confidence and assurance that every trace of every symptom will leave my body. I can say without, well, without caring what anybody else says or thinks that I am healed by the stripes of Jesus. But one of the things that the Lord really recently, very recently, has begun to deal with me about, and, and it has to do with certainly the trying of your faith, and, and there hasn't been a day that the devil hasn't told me that I'm a failure. There hasn't been a day when the devil has not spoken to my mind to try to convince me that my faith isn't working and that even though things have changed a little bit according to his terms a lot as far as I'm concerned but even though things have changed some this is going to be the way that it is for the rest of my life and it's laughable because of some of the symptoms that I've experienced, because of some of the things that have come against me, the fact that those things have changed 
the fact that those things are different now. And the, the ridiculousness of the idea that God would bring you to a certain point but not take you all the way. That's laughable. And many times that's the way that I answer him. It's just a laugh. God's a good God. And he provided for all of man's needs. Spiritually, physically, materially, in every other way. The Bible is so full. And, and these are things I already knew. Or these are things that I was aware of. Let me say it that way. You only know what you live. You only know what of God's word that you put in practice in your life. Now, go, don't get me wrong. I'm not about to say thank God for these eight years. I'm not about to say God was behind this and had a purpose in it and all that other kind of religious junk that people say. There's not one day that's good if it's spent attached or attacked by sickness and disease. There's not one minute of it that's good. And there's not one part of it that God brings upon mankind, ever. It's totally the work of the devil. Totally the work of the devil. But rather than say, as some people would say, that God's trying to teach me something. See, some people would take just what I've said so far and they'd say, well, see, look how you've learned. Look how you've grown. That was the will of God. Well, certainly it's the will of God for me to grow. But God doesn't teach you through sickness and disease. The reason I've grown is because I threw myself into the, what the Word says about healing from sickness and disease. That's the reason that I've grown. And I can say without fear of contradiction, because nobody else knows, I was there for every minute of it. But I can say with absolute certainty that the Word of God concerning healing is more precious to me now than it ever has been. I am more persuaded than I ever have been, regardless of the things that I saw working through Brother Hagin, the healing ministry that he had, and the healing anointing that he had. There's nothing that has created in me or brought me to the place where I am fully persuaded except saturating myself in the, in the Word of God. I am more convinced than I've ever been until tomorrow. And I'll be more convinced then. Look with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 beginning in verse 1. It says, Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The word sorrows is the word pain. The word grief is the word sickness. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of pains and acquainted with sickness. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Now, folks, the griefs, the acquainted with griefs, that it's talking about here is not talking about Jesus' experience in healing the sick in his earthly ministry. This word acquainted is the word know. It's the same word that's used when it says things like, uh, and Adam knew his wife Eve and they conceived a child. It's talking about 
a relationship. It's talking about a joining together. It's talking about Jesus' sacrifice, the price that he paid for sickness or for healing from sickness and disease. He was a man of sorrows or pains and acquainted with grief. He was intertwined with sickness and disease. And, of course, this is talking about the price that he paid and the, the sacrifice that he made for us. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, the only time the word surely is used in this chapter is concerning sickness and disease. Surely he hath borne our griefs. That's the word sickness again. And carried our sorrows or pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. I knew all those scriptures. I knew the truth of those scriptures. But I know it now more than I've ever known it before. Now some people would consider that a hindrance. Some people would consider, uh, well, we've even had people say, I've even had people say, I don't know why you tell people in church that you're healed. You should wait till you get your healing and then tell them. Bless their darling hearts, as Brother Hagin would say. No, folks, it's true now because Jesus has paid the price. It's not true when, I, when I'm in a situation or a condition that you can see the difference or see a change. Seeing the change Seeing the difference has nothing to do with the truth of God's word. Now, it will bring by the application of God's word, by the belief in the confession of God's word, it'll bring a visible change. But the healing work of Jesus was finished on the cross. The healing work of Jesus was finished when he was raised from the dead. By his stripes, we are healed. We're not going to be healed, we have been healed. Look at James chapter 5. The only instruction that's given to the church concerning healing from sickness and disease. It's the only place where the Holy Ghost instructs or directs the church about what to do concerning sickness and disease. Verse 14, is any sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. Now notice this phrase. And if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Notice the connection that the Holy Ghost makes. Once again, between forgiveness of sins and healing for the physical body. And if they've committed sins. All sickness is not the result of individual sin. Sickness is the result of Adam's original sin. You remember in John chapter 9, Jesus came upon a man that had been born blind. Apparently everybody knew who this guy was. And so his disciples asked Jesus, who sinned to bring about this sickness? Was it the man himself or was it his parents? And Jesus says neither one. He doesn't say sin isn't the problem. He just says it's not personal or family sin that brought it on. So Jesus answers and says, Neither is this man sin nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest, I must work the works of him that sent me. 
Now, the way that the Bible defines that or uh, divides that, I should say, the way the translators broke it up, it looks like Jesus is saying, by the way they put it and allowed it to be uh, broken up into verses, it looks like Jesus is saying, it's not this man or his parents' sin that caused his blindness, but God wanted him to be sick so that I could heal him. Well, now, folks, if God never changes, thank God he doesn't. He said it himself, I am God, I change not. If God never changes, and he ever wanted this blind man to be blind, if he ever willed that, even for one second of his life, that means the will of God would have to be for him to stay blind for the entirety of his life because God never changes. We can't say that it was God's will for him to be blind before Jesus got there, but that his will changed so that Jesus could heal him. That doesn't work. God would be a changing God under those circumstances. Thank God he's not. So if Jesus is saying that God wanted this man to be blind, he arranged for this man to be born blind so that I could heal him and show him the works of God in his body. If that's the case and God can't change so his will can't change, then that means Jesus healed him out of the will of God. That means anything Jesus did to relieve the suffering or to relieve the condition that God wanted this man to be in would be a sin against God's will. Well, we know that can't be true. So what is he saying? He's very simply saying this. It wasn't individual sin on this man's part. It wasn't family sin on his parents' part that caused him to be born blind. He was born blind because it's the consequence of sin coming into the earth. He's not even giving credit to the devil for working this thing out. He certainly doesn't give credit to God for being a part of it because he wasn't a part of it. He just simply says, I must work the works of him that sent me while it's today. The time is coming and the time is coming shortly from the time that this took place. Where I can't do any more works, Jesus said. Well, that time was only the time when he went to the cross to pay the penalty for sin and sickness. So when Jesus says, I must work the works of him that sent me, all we have to do is look at what Jesus did to identify and discover what God's will was concerning this man. Well, what did Jesus do? He healed him. Jesus said, I always do the will of my Father, which means it had to be the will of God for this man to be, to be able to see, for his sight to be recovered. Then that has to mean that at no time during this man's life did God ever will for him to be sin, or will for him to be blind, or want him to be blind for any circumstance or for any purpose whatsoever. God was not behind this. But instead, God was behind the healing part. Now, the disciples knew that much. I wish the modern-day church would just get a hold of that much. The disciples understood that sin was the opening of the door to sickness and disease. They didn't know whose sin. And there would be no way without revelation, supernatural revelation, God revealing it to them or showing it to them in some way or another. There'd be no way to realize or to understand or to, or to discern whose sin caused this man to be blind except Jesus answered it for him. But Jesus, who was anointed of God with the Holy Ghost and power, went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. 
if that verse of Scripture is true, that's Acts 10.38. If that verse of Scripture is true, that Jesus healed all that were oppressed of the devil, then this man's blindness in John chapter 9 had to be the work of the devil. Because he's one that Jesus healed, and Jesus went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. For God was with him. I've been amazed over the last years, the last eight years, at the devil trying to, to get me to buy into the, to the idea, the notion, that God ha- is behind this some way or another and has a purpose in it. See, I would have thought that he would know already that I was never going to take hold of that, never accept that to be true. But he's there almost every day with some form of that. Thank God we have authority over the devil. Thank God through the knowledge of God's word, we don't have to be taken in by these lies. No matter if the church is the agent by which those lies are told. God's always a good God. He's always a healing God. So back to James chapter 5. Is any sick among you? The implication is there shouldn't be. You wouldn't write to the church today and say, is any sick among you? You'd say the percentage, and for most churches it would be a large percentage of people that are sick. Listen up, here's instruction for you. But he says, is any sick among you? If so, here's what to do. Call for the elders of the church. Notice it doesn't say the elders of the church will call for you. See, faith is, is active faith, receiving faith. It's always initiated by the recipient. Active faith, receiving faith, is always initiated by the recipient. Well, that's what James says for the church to do. Is any sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church and let them, the elders, pray over them, the sick, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, why is the anointing with oil a part of what James instructs the church to do? Well, remember, James is writing to the Hebrews, the Jews, Jewish Christians that are scattered abroad and were scattered abroad because of the persecution of Rome. They understood what anointing with oil means. They understood the significance of it. And anointing with oil was something that you did when you consecrated an item or a possession or your house or whatever to the work and the service of the Lord. Paul never gives the the Gentile church any instructions concerning anointing with oil. Instead, Paul says, and he says this in several places, but the most, the clearest place that he says it is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, about verse 20, I believe. He says, glorify God in both your body and your spirit, which are both God's. In other words, Paul taught the Gentiles that Jesus paid the price to purchase healing for the physical body. And therefore, the body was a part of the work of salvation. Therefore, your body belongs to God just as much as your spirit does. Well, that's what the anointing with oil was supposed to signify. It was supposed to signify or did signify for the Jews as part of their history. It signified for them that the possession that was being anointed with oil was sanctified for the use and the purpose of God. Paul seemed to instruct us and through his preaching, through his ministry, identified that the knowledge that our bodies had been purchased along with our spirits. 
is sufficient to come to the same point, the same understanding, and provide the same results as the anointing with oil that James told the Jewish church to operate in. Well, are we Jews or Gentiles? We're Gentiles, but spiritual Jews. So what is the instruction for us? Well, the important thing is to know that our bodies were purchased by the blood of Jesus. Now, the reason that's important is not so that we can say our bodies belong to God. The importance is so that we can know, have a basis and a foundation in truth that since Jesus purchased our bodies with his blood, along with the purchase of our spirits, which enable us to enter into the new birth, which enables us to be made righteous in this lifetime, here and now, the important thing is that we know that he paid the price for our bodies as well as our spirits so that we can have faith to take hold of the healing that belongs to us, that he purchased for us. That's what the anointing with oil is about. Well, since we're not a Gentile church, we don't practice very often the anointing with oil. Now, if somebody asks for it, if somebody re requests it, then we will. But as I said, the anointing with oil, the purpose for the anointing with oil is satisfied by the knowledge that Jesus purchased our spirits and our bodies according to the scripture. So he says, if, any, if there's any sick among you, call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. This word prayer that's used is a definitive word, but it doesn't mean to pray or ask for something as we understand it. It means a vow or a declaration. Now notice what it says. It says, the elders will pray over the sick. This word pray is a general word that just simply means worship. So he says, James is saying by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, that the, a key ingredient to coming for healing is to worship God. To worship God. Worship him for what? Worshiping him. Worship him for sending Jesus to pay the price for our physical well-being. And then he says to go a step further, to make a vow or a declaration of faith. Well, if the prayer of faith is what saves the sick, Jesus told us what the prayer of faith was in Mark eleven twenty four. 24. Jesus said, therefore, when you pray, believe you receive those things whichsoever you desire. When you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. So the prayer of faith is the vow or declaration that the work has been done because we've asked God for it. We've worshipped God, and we certainly have reason and a right to worship God because of the work that Jesus has accomplished, the healing power, the healing condition that Jesus has brought us into through his sacrifice. And then we make our vow or declaration of faith that we are healed by the stripes of Jesus. Not that we're going to be healed. Not if God hears us and answers us, then, then healing will come but rather the vow and declaration that Jesus has paid the price. The work has been done. The work has been finished. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God now because the work is complete. Therefore, by his stripes, we are healed. And then James throws in by the Holy Ghost. He throws in that little caveat. He says, and if he's committed sin, if he's committed sin, those sins shall be forgiven him. Now, folks, most of the time the devil tries to dissuade people from taking hold of their, of their healing or any other blessing of God by attacking their sense of unworthiness or by attacking their righteousness to make them believe that they are unworthy.
Maybe that's a better way to say it. The devil never wants you to think and bring before him and declare with confidence that we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Because righteousness means that everything that was wrong has been made right. It means the sin and the sickness that entered into the world through Adam's transgression, Adam's original sin, has been bought and paid for by the finished work of Jesus. Literally because we are right, and that means right in a lot of different ways, right with God, right before God, without sin, without any guilt or condemnation, sense of condemnation whatsoever. Because we've been brought into that righteous position, that family relationship with God, our Heavenly Father, because of that, healing automatically belongs to us. The devil doesn't want anybody to think like that. He doesn't want anybody to catch hold of that. See, if we've been made righteous, then whatever sickness and disease attacks our body is a rogue work of evil that you and I have been freed from. So if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Then he goes further in verse 16, and notice this. He says, confess your faults one to another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. He's simply saying, by the Holy Ghost, he's saying, maintain your love walk. See, confess your faults would be a matter of stepping outside of sin or confessing that we did take a step outside of love. I said outside of sin, but I meant love. So he's saying, walk in love. Confess your faults one to another means maintain the love walk. Maintain your love walk. You remember in, uh, in uh, Mark, 20, Mark chapter 11, Jesus curses the fig tree and the fig tree dries up from the roots. The next day, Peter calls it to Jesus' attention and Jesus says, have faith in God. Some translations say, have the faith of God. And then he tells us what faith will do and how faith works. He said, for whosoever shall say unto this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea. And shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Then he talks about how prayer works, how faith works in prayer. Or he gives us a description of the prayer of faith. This is the prayer of faith that saves or heals the sick. In James chapter 5, Jesus said, Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. He didn't say believe you receive the things you desire after you see them come to pass. He said, believe that you receive them when you pray. That means we come out of prayer with the attitude that the work is done, the work is finished, we've made our petitions before God. He's heard us and answered us because we prayed according to his will. It's always his will to heal the sick. That's why Jesus paid the price for every living soul. Thank you, Lord, the work is done. No matter how we see or what we see, no matter how we feel, whether a change has occurred according to the physical eye or not, we made contact with God because we obeyed his word. But then verse 25 of Mark chapter 11 goes a little further. And Jesus is faithful to show us the greatest hindrance to our faith being in operation. He said, and when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anybody. Why does he talk about forgiveness? He says, he goes further. And remember, he's talking under the old covenant, not under the new covenant. He says, if you forgive, then your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if, he, if you won't forgive, then he can't forgive you. That's the way forgiveness worked under the old covenant. 
It's not the way it works now. The Bible says that we're to love one another even as God loved us. How did he love us? He loved us while we were enemies of God. So walking in love now means a whole lot more than it did then. We have the advantage and the ability because the, the love of God is shed abroad in our heart when we're born again. Under the old covenant, they didn't have the love of God. They could make a decision and a determination to walk in love to the degree that they were able. But they didn't have a changed heart. They didn't have a new spirit that was given to them by the love of God. They didn't have the deposit of God's love to be able to forgive like God forgives. That's how the Bible tells us to forgive nowadays. Forgive one another even as God has forgiven you. They didn't have that. So when James says confess your faults one to another, he's just saying stay in the, stay, keep in the love of God. Keep walking in the love of God. And he calls that and, and shows us the way that he speaks it. He shows us that it's a criteria for being able to pray one for another and to be healed. Remember what Galatians chapter 5 verse 6 says, faith works by love. Faith works by love. Well, if faith works by love, it can't work unless we're walking in love. It can't work unless we're walking in love. So here's James by the Holy Ghost saying the same things that the Old Testament prophets said. He's identifying specifically that Jesus paid the price for sin and for sickness and disease. And with his stripes we were healed. He makes the same connection between sin and sickness, freedom from sin and freedom from sickness, all in the same sentence, the same verse. Now, folks, what I want you to see about this and what I want you to always keep in mind and always remember is simply this. The devil tries to tell you that your sins, the sins that you've committed since you've been born again, he always tries to tell you that your sins will keep your faith from working. Well, it wouldn't keep this guy's faith from working that James is talking about. James says, and if he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. He doesn't say, and if he uh, brings a sacrifice before the Lord, then he'll be forgiven. If he keeps the law of Moses and recalls the day of atonement, then he'll be forgiven. Doesn't say any of that. It says the same prayer of faith, the same declaration of faith that Jesus took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses and with his stripes or by his stripes we were healed. He says that same declaration of faith will forgive sin because it's all wrapped up in the same work of Jesus. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. One of my favorite stories that I heard Brother Hagin tell over the years he went to a, a, a church meeting, held a, a church meeting. He was going to be there for several weeks. I'm not sure exactly how long, but several weeks. It was planned to go for several weeks at least, which was common for the types of meetings that he would hold at that point in time. But there was a, a couple in the church that used to be in the ministry. They had been pastors themselves at a different place at a certain time. And for whatever reason, they had moved back to their hometown, which was in this town where Brother Hagin was holding the the uh, seminar, the church meetings. And so they went to lunch one day at the request of the couple. And they're sitting at the restaurant, little diner, country diner type thing. They're sitting there at the table. 
And she said, Brother Hagen, you've got me confused. And Brother Hagen, knowing him well, just kind of jabbed at her a little bit and said, no, you were confused before I got here. The light of God's word just showed it up. He said, what's the problem? And she went on to explain that the night before, Brother Hagen was saying, if you don't love your brother, he's reading from what John wrote to the church, if you don't love your brother, then you're a murderer. And he had just kind of off the cuff added into that, that means mother-in-law too. And so she recounted that at this lunch that they were having. And Brother Hagen said, well, you haven't asked me anything. You've told me something. What's the problem? And she said, I hate my mother-in-law. And Brother Hagen kept her on the hook for a little bit. And he said, well, that, that's it then. According to the scriptures, you're a murderer. You shouldn't think as a murderer that you have any part in the blessings of God. And she started making her case. She said, you know my parents. You know how they were in the ministry for many years. You know how I was born in the parsonage of the, of the church that they were pastoring. You know how I've grown up in, in the things of God all my life. You know the Bible schools that I attended, the ministerial training that I received, and so forth. And Brother Hagin just kept saying, doesn't matter about any of that stuff. If you hate your mother-in-law, you're a murderer and don't have any part in the things of God. And after a while... He could see that she was getting a little bit distraught because he was answering everything that she had to say and every check mark to her benefit or to her good, he had an answer for. And finally, he said this. He said, I want you to do something for me. He said, I want you to look me right in the eye and say, just as you said before, I hate my mother-in-law. And when you do that, I want you to check down on the inside, your spirit, your innermost being. Check down on the inside and see what happens. She looked him right in the eye and said, I hate my mother-in-law. Brother Hagen said, what's going on down on your, in your heart, in your spirit? She said, something's scratching me. He said, well, of course it is. That's the love of God. The love of God has already been shed abroad in your heart. So she said, well, what am I to do? He said, act like, treat them like. You would if you did love them because you do. He had to repeat that a couple of times for her, to, for her to understand. In other words, he told her to act as if she would, if she really did love them, because by the love of God in her heart, she already did. So he talked to her, told her how this worked, gave her the encouragement that she needed. A couple of nights later, Brother Hagen was invited, brother and sister, brother Hagen and his wife were invited along with the pastor and his wife and some others to a, uh, an after service gathering that were, they were having at this uh, uh, couple, this friend, this lady that was talking about. They were having something for uh, the staff and, and guests and that type of thing. So she invited brother Hagen and, and uh, Aretha to go to visit and be part of the group. So they agreed to do it. And they got over there, and this has just been a couple of days later, not very long after that at all. But when she went, the lady came to him sometime during the, the party, and she said this. She said, Brother Hagen, you are exactly right. My in-laws are wonderful people. They may not do everything just the way that I do it, and they may not do everything the way that I wish they would. But I see, by the love of God within me, I see that these are wonderful people. And so her problem was solved. Now she's realizing that the love of God, which the Bible said was already shed abroad in her heart, was in reality there. 
See, folks, when you agree with what the Bible says about you, when you agree with what the Bible says who you are, when you agree with what the Bible says belongs to you, then the reality of it becomes such that it comes to pass. But you have to be the one. You have to be the initiator to take hold of it. And you take hold of it by faith. Well, that wasn't the end of the story. The meetings continued for another week or so, or during the, the week or so, the next week or, or so. There was a situation where this woman called Brother Hagen. They had a daughter. She and her husband had a daughter that had some kind of problem with her, her feet from the time that she was born. And she had these braces on, real thick, real tight braces that would keep her legs straight. But when you took those braces off, the legs were no longer restricted and they'd flop over and she couldn't walk. Well, she could totter, totter around a little bit with the, the braces, but couldn't really walk and so forth. And so she asked Brother Hagen if he would come by. There was something else attached with this. There was some type of epilepsy or epileptic fit that uh, she would go into, this daughter would go into. And uh, so Brother Hagen, the, the mom said that there were some preliminary signs of this thing about to happen. And so Brother and Sister Hagen were just about to leave their, uh, wherever they were staying, to uh, go to the, the, the church service. And so he said, yeah, we'll swing by there on our way to church. And in the process, on the drive over, Brother Hagen heard the word of the Lord come to him. He said it sounded audible to him, but nobody else in the car heard it, so it must not have been. But it was like somebody sitting in the back seat that said, don't pray for the child when you get there. And gave him instructions on what to do. He said, tell the, now here's the Lord telling him how to minister to her. Tell the, the mother to say unto Satan, Satan, I'm walking in love. Take your hands off my child. And so Brother Hagen got there, went to where the child was, had the preliminary signs of this grand mal epileptic seizure type thing. And Brother Hagen said to the mother what the Lord told him to say. Well, she instantly, she didn't wait. She didn't ask any questions about it. She turned and pointed to her daughter and said, Satan, I'm walking in love. Take your hands off my daughter. And immediately that seizure stopped. Instantly that seizure stopped. Now, some people hear that story and say, yeah, but she was walking in love. She only had been for the last week. This is the woman that said she hated her mother-in-law, but yielded to the love of God in her heart. Brother Hagen asked her, something came about many years later, and he asked her about the condition of her daughter. And she said, one time, many years later, this situation, this seizure, the symptoms of this seizure began to, to start up. And Brother Hagen said, what would you do? She said, I did the th same thing you told me to do the first time. She said, I told the devil to take his hands off my daughter because I'm walking in love. She said, it ceased instantly and never came back. Folks, when we live according to the life of God that's been shed abroad in our hearts, when we live according to the righteousness that the Bible says belongs to us, and when I talk about righteousness, I am not talking about behavior. Righteousness has no more bearing or connection with behavior than anything in the world. Righteousness is not behavior. Righteousness is a position. 
We've been raised with Christ Jesus into righteousness. We didn't gain it through our behavior, and so therefore we can't lose it by our behavior. Righteousness is the position that God, by his grace, has granted unto us through our faith to receive, certainly. But it's the gift of God. And it wasn't given to a select few that acted or behaved right in their lives. It was given to everybody because of the work of Jesus. And since, I'll say it again, since it's not based on our behavior or our actions, our behavior, wrong behavior or wrong actions can't deprive it of us. We don't lose righteousness because of our behavior. It has no bearing and no connection on behavior whatsoever. We've been made righteous because Jesus made us so. Now certainly we want to live up to that righteousness. We want to conduct ourselves in a proper and appropriate way so that that righteousness can be seen by others. But it has nothing. The position of righteousness that we've been made has absolutely nothing to do with behavior. Nothing in this world. Folks, these are the truths that God has given us to put us over in life. To bring us to the place where we enjoy victory in every area of our lives. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, not one left out. Who healeth all thy diseases, not one left out. Let's pray. Well, I tell you what, instead of, instead of praying, let's just lift our hands to God and worship him. Lord, we worship you. We magnify your holy name. Jesus, we bless you for paying the price for sin and sickness. We thank you that it's been done. We thank you that it's part of God's holy plan of redemption, and you fulfilled it, and you carried it out on our behalf. You became our substitute for sin. Therefore, sin has no longer bearing upon us. We're not in bondage to sin any longer. You took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. So sickness and disease has no hold upon us. We thank you, Father, that we are just as healed as we are saved. Because both were accomplished through the precious blood, the substitutionary work of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. So we bless you, Father. We magnify your holy name. We declare by the prayer of faith that we are healed from the top of our heads to the soles of our feet. We declare that Jesus took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses, and with his stripes we were healed. If we were healed when Jesus took our stripes, took stripes upon his back for our sake, then we are healed now. Therefore, regardless of how we feel, regardless of what symptoms may be in our bodies, we call our bodies well. In the name of Jesus, by the precious blood of, of the Lamb, we call ourselves well. We call our bodies well. From the top of our heads to the soles of our feet, we declare that we are healed by the stripes of Jesus. We bless you, Father. We magnify your holy name. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for paying the price for us. Thank you for bringing us into righteousness and restoring our health. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Folks, these things couldn't be more real. They could not be more true. 
And God's word has revealed it to us so that we can walk in it. Amen? Amen. Well, say it with me. I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus. Amen. God bless you, folks. Have a great week.